0: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblin, and I'm from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and my friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center.
1: Hey, guys.
0: And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas.
1: Hi. So
0: before we get started with questions from our listeners, I wanted to check in with you guys. How are you guys doing? Hanging. Hanging?
2: (laughs) Surviving. Some days are better and more fluid than others, but surviving at the end of each day, so I'll take it.
0: So since the holidays have kind of died down, are you guys kind of back into like normal groove? Like, are you... I know we're all working still, but are you guys doing anything fun for hobbies since the holidays are over?
1: We are. We are. I think, uh, you know, kind of with the new year, everybody has those things they want to get back to and putting back on the front burner. Um, So I... I have a, my, my thing is more a little project than necessarily a hobby, but, um, it's become a
0: hobby. You said that, right.
1: It has become a hobby (laughs) because it's, I consider a hobby, something that you enjoy doing and you pay to do it. (laughs) And so, um, I am actually working on getting dual citizenship for me and my mother and my three kids, um, for, uh, the United States and Lithuania. So um, and tell us why you picked Lithuania again, Lithuania well, seems
2: rather random for
0: it does seem like a kind of a random country.
1: It does seem like a kind of random country. So actually, my um, my mother's family is from Lithuania, my um, grandmother and grandfather, uh, they're. Ancestry is primarily in Lithuania and they were born there, as were my two older aunts. My mom was born actually in Germany uh, as a, a a product of World War II. And um so they my my grandparents ended up evacuating Lithuania because of the Russian invasion, and they ended up in Germany for a number of years, and then Um, they actually came over to the United States as refugees and at the time that, um, they did that. They had the choices of coming to the United States, Canada, or Australia. But um, one of my aunts had tuberculosis. Oh, wow. And so they um, considered the climate of Texas um, to be the most <laughs> ideal um, for a, a, a little girl with tuberculosis. And she ended up doing very well here and recovered and everything like that. Um, but about 10 years ago, uh, Lithuania opened up a program for um, descendants, essentially, if you had a parent, grandparent, or great-grandparent that has, that left from 1940 to 1990 um, because of World War II and the Russian occupation and things like that. Um, And they opened up this program where you could obtain dual citizenship. So, a couple years ago, I found out about this and started looking into it and Gradually I've been gathering documents and stuff, but it's it's really kind of coming to a pinnacle at this point. Oh, cool. I, I, I think I have all of my documents. I'm just getting some things authenticated and translated. And um, you know, it really kind of opens up some really cool opportunities because Lithuania, you know, it's like this little bitty country in Europe that most people don't even may not know it even exists, but it is, but it is part of the EU. So when we become, you know, citizens of Lithuania as well as the United States. We also Ooh. become members of the EU. we will be
0: a European EU citizen then, huh? We'll
1: be a EU, EU citizens. And so we can, you know, not necessarily, I, I probably will not live in Europe, at least not until I retire. Susan, <laughs> um, do, you, do you have to take any tests or anything with this? Do you have to know anything about Lithuania? So if you were going to try to attain citizenship in kind of the normal way, yes, you would have to have language mastery and things oh, okay. like that, but not for this particular, you know, I, I I would venture to say that Lithuania probably lost probably 25 to 40% of its population um, that it would have retained if it wasn't for the Second World War. And so I think they're trying to kind of revitalize their economy. Um, I believe the current president of Lithuania um, actually was a dual U.S.-Lithuanian huh. citizen until he he won the presidential election and had to relinquish his U.S. citizenship to become president. So it's it's kind of a neat thing. And I, I think it'll bring my family, you know, some cool opportunities. Oh, but cool. I, I definitely think that... I have a much um, better appreciation for people who are trying to gain citizenship of any country um, because it is it is not nearly as straightforward
0: <laughs> as you would expect. So as a little different term, we were sort of talking about hobbies, but since you were talking about ancestry, I'm taking I'm making a turn. so so sort of similar but very different. My mom, for many, many years before she passed away, knew that she had some link to be a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And so for about five or six years, she tried to gather all this data up. And man, you have to have everything. You have to have your lineage, birth certificates, death certificates, Mm -hmm. everything. It can't just be hearsay. All the way from your revolutionary war hero, all the way down to you. And so for many years, she tried to do that. And a couple, probably two or three, well, it's been probably three years ago, finally someone that she knew in our town really enjoyed doing that sort of thing and so she did it all for free and she basically tracked everything down and so apparently so so we my sister and my mother and I all, all became members of the DAR and apparently my um my link person was the founder of Hagerstown Maryland so that's that's mm. my link to the DAR so but it was really kind of exciting so i'm sure it's kind of neat to track your lineage down and, you know, kind of do this as part of that. And I'm sure it's really a neat thing for your, your family.
1: It has been cool. It has been cool. And I have to say that, um, thank goodness for translation apps. Um, (laughs) Otherwise it would be, it it would be a challenge. Lithuanian is somewhere, but when you look at the alphabet, it's somewhere between like kind of our our standard alphabet and what you would see like a Cyrillic alphabet. There's a lot of things in there that we don't necessarily have. And it, it's a it's a very interesting language. So it would be a challenge without these apps we have so, nowadays. Susan,
0: not to stress you out or anything, but if you happen to see the Lithuanian flag, could you give me two of the three colors in the Lithuanian flag? Um
1: yellow and green. And I think the other one's red.
0: You're right. Three stripes,
1: (laughs) yellow, green, and red. I just, I just Googled it. (laughs) All right. You passed. You did it. You're an EU
0: citizen now.
1: (laughs) So what else are y'all doing? Uh, Nothing nearly
0: as exciting as (laughs) as, as becoming a Lithuanian citizen. You can't top that Carrie.
2: I, you know, I sit here and I tinker with, shells that I picked up on the beach last summer and turned them into a, an artwork and I've got another piece that I'm working on right now that you know I'm just decorating walls and
1: y'all are the artsy people though so I don't have the artsy thing to do so I have to find other venues <laughs> so yeah
2: I mean it's it's been fun to learn how to you know, watch the various YouTube videos and see. okay, if I use this kind of brush and I use this kind of paint, this is the effect that I can get. So
0: that's amazing what you can learn from YouTube videos. It is amazing.
2: <laughs> it really is. And having spent, you know, uh, quite a few years in tech theater, painting sets and things like that. A lot of those techniques are coming back of, all right, if I sponge like this, I can get some rocks. And if I do good, I can get bricks and the sky and marble and those kind of effects. So,
0: Cool. Cool. So who has our question of the day?
2: So I've got the question of the day. And the question of the day is the WHO said not to give the vaccine to pregnant ladies. Who's the WHO, Carrie? Sorry to interrupt. That's the World Health Organization. So the WHO says not to give vaccines to pregnant ladies, but the CDC says you should. What gives here? What should we do? Um, and so the,
1: and this is in relationship. I think our our listener is referring to the COVID nineteen vaccine. Yes, not all vaccines.
2: <laughs> yeah. Not all vaccines. But presumably, given that is the vaccine of the hour, I'm I'm guessing that that's what they're talking about. So, um, so, and I'm I'm also assuming that they're talking about um, there was a a blip in time that it was really really relatively short. I mean, it was just a couple of days where. Um, the WHO said, you should not give, they named the Moderna vaccine initially, and then they they kind of blanketed it to include Pfizer, you should not give this vaccine to pregnant ladies. And it made big headlines. And of course, that's in direct opposition to what CDC, you know, the Fertility Society, the High Risk OB Society, the General OB Society, the College of Immunization Practices, like all of these different groups are saying. And so, um, so presumably that's what they're they're referencing there.
1: So in truth, at this point in time, when we're broadcasting this episode, the CDC and the WHO both do agree that pregnant women um, should have access to the COVID-19 vaccine.
2: Yeah, and everyone should be offered that vaccine. And the the way that the original data that's set or the original uh, recommendation of don't give it it seemed like it was more interpreted on grounds of, we don't have data, so we're not going to recommend it. Um, and they were maybe focusing perhaps a bit more on the data that didn't exist.
0: And that probably won't exist for a while, unfortunately.
2: Exactly. It won't exist for a while because pregnancy is nine months and children are forever um, <laughs> in terms of what we can get from it. But but they didn't necessarily fully consider the fact the, the prevalence of COVID is really high still. And the risks of a pregnant woman getting COVID while pregnant and the impact that has on both her health and the baby's health are, are quite high. And so as a result, they very quickly um, revised the statement to say, you know, to be in line with, with what most of the other uh, medical organizations are saying, which is talk it over with your doc. There's a higher risk and get protected.
0: All right. So, today we're going to talk about ovarian cysts, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And a lot of times I get questions from patients about cysts. And most of the time when I say that you have this follicle or this cyst, patients are really nervous about that. And so, Carrie, can you kind of start us off and tell us what's the difference between what's a good cyst? I guess is the best what's question. What's a to follicle
1: ask. versus a cyst?
0: So yeah, that's a good question.
2: Let's start there. That's a good starting place. So a follicle is um, can be something as small as what we call an antral follicle, which is between two and 10 millimeters, so less than a centimeter, that we're looking for to say, okay, what is your anticipated egg count at the beginning of any given month? And that's how a lot of fertility doctors gauge a part of your ovarian reserve, how we're going to dose medications for fertility treatment. That follicle grows throughout the course of the month. And so, if you start with your beginning of your menstrual cycle, first day of bleeding, and you have a, let's say, textbook 28 day cycle, throughout the course of those 28 days, that follicle is, that group of follicles is going to grow. One's going to emerge as what's called dominant follicle, which is really the biggest, the biggest and strongest of them all. And then, It's got the opportunity to be released where pregnancy can occur. And then after that point, and that's typically right around day 14 or so, um, the follicle starts to collapse in on itself and the body's really good at conserving energy. And so what it does is it just, that's not just a waste bin of space after the egg gets released. It turns into a very functional hormone producing structure that then supports a pregnancy. So when we say follicular cyst, um, or sometimes we'll, depending on who's reading the scan, they'll just say cyst, a lot of those cysts are coming and going as a natural part of ovulation. So follicular cysts to us are really what we're going for most of the time, because that means that there's a really good chance, not guaranteed, but a really good chance there's an egg in there and that's gonna help us get you pregnant, whatever kind of treatment we're doing. So that's a follicular cyst.
0: So Carrie, what happens if say, you know, like you said about day 13, 14, that cyst breaks open and the egg comes out. So what happens if that cyst has a little bit of bleeding inside and it seals back up? So that's what's called a hemorrhagic cyst. And you just end up with a
2: little blood collection in that area and um, it seals back over most of the time. So it doesn't pose a threat to you, but any blood that's in the pelvic cavity at all in the abdomen is really irritating. So it doesn't take a whole lot for a woman to feel that and go, "Ugh, I don't feel good. My stomach hurts. I am, you know, I feel like I need to go to the bathroom, but there's nothing there." Um, and and just that kind of
1: achy, crampy,
2: yeah, just kind of crummy.
1: Um, so how
0: big how big can those cysts get? Do they are they tiny or are they big or somewhere in between? Yes. All
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. The answer
2: to your question is yes. Um, so all those things apply. They can get quite large. I mean, most of the time, most follicular cysts that we're looking at are somewhere at their biggest between two to three centimeters. Um, hemorrhagic cysts, particularly when they grow big, if you've got a little bleeder in there, they can be five, six, eight, ten 10 centimeters. Um, you know, really, really good size and, and able to cause a fair amount of discomfort. And particularly if you've got one of those hemorrhagic cysts that it's, it's all closed off, but it pushes itself to the limits where it opens up and that blood spills out into the, the pelvis. That's when sometimes we have to hospitalize a person, monitor overnight, watch your blood counts and occasionally go in surgically to close it back up because blood is really irritating in the pelvis.
1: But those are pretty darn rare,
0: right? Very rare, actually. Yeah, but it can't happen.
1: They can't happen. I, I think people used to operate on hemorrhagic cysts a lot more, say 10, 15 years ago than they necessarily do now. Um, and then we also have, have we talked about corpus luteum cysts yet?
2: I referred to them briefly, but ever so them. briefly.
1: I will kind of take off with that one. So, um, as Carrie was talking about that, you know, we have that dominant follicle that has the mature egg in it. And when you ovulate, what actually happens is the hormonal changes that happen around ovulation cause a tiny little hole to happen in that follicle. And then the ovary, contracts. That's why some people are like, Oh my goodness, I can feel my ovulation. Well, you're feeling your ovary kind of squeeze itself. Okay. To squeeze out that fluid. And then that follicle that but it you, didn't
0: necessarily squirt out like ketchup though. Right, Susan? It doesn't it's kind have, of a, no, it
1: kind of like gently <laughs> oozes out. <laughs> it's not like ketchup. Um, so you, you, you know, so the, the follicular fluid goes into the pelvis and that follicle that you ovulated from actually goes through this conformational change and becomes something called a corpus luteum. Okay, so corpus luteum, it's Latin for yellow body because it actually even changes color. It's pretty cool.
2: This is not like those heat activated tie dye shirt, not tie dye shirt, <laughs> heat activated color change shirts that we all had in the 80s. It doesn't change color like that and go back.
1: Exactly. It it permanently turns yellow until it goes away. So it it turns yellow. It starts producing progesterone, which helps support, hopefully, a pregnancy that's going to be happening. And if that corpus luteum gets the hormonal signals, the pregnancy hormone, the HCG signals, it will keep on producing progesterone until about 10 weeks or so of pregnancy when the the placenta has completely taken over. Um, But if you end up not getting pregnant, that corpus luteum, and it has a very, uh, for a lot of times it has a very specific um, kind of shape and architecture um, on ultrasound if it doesn't get that pregnancy hormone signal that you're pregnant, it involutes. So essentially it collapses upon itself and it goes away. And so that goes away. So sometimes we'll see something corpus luteum can sometimes look like something else, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, And so sometimes we're like, "Mm, this may be a corpus luteum. Let's see if it goes away. If it does, that's what it was. So, Abby, what what else would I possibly be, be thinking it might look like? Well, usually
0: physiologic processes, like if an egg is released and it's a hemorrhagic cyst, usually within a cycle or two, your body just has a natural way of making that go away. But if we see a cyst there, two, three centimeters or greater, we say, well, that looks kind of like a corpus luteum. But then we see you back, you know, six weeks later, maybe 12 weeks later, and that's still there, hadn't changed about the same size. Then, unfortunately, we're starting to think, eh. This isn't a physiologic cyst. This isn't something that's going to go away. This is something pathologic, not i.e. not good. And usually for our patients, what that means is they have something called endometriosis. And endometriosis is where the lining of the uterine cavity grows outside in a place it shouldn't be. And sometimes it actually can, can kind of grow on top of the ovary and then ultimately involute into the ovary and become endometriosis. And the reason I think that's important for our patients is because endometriosis is one of those things that can at least impair your fertility. And in some patients, if they have really aggressive endometriosis, and if it's in your ovary, unfortunately, it would be considered a stage three out of stage four. So more aggressive endometriosis. It also means that there can be other endometriosis around that can lock your fallopian tubes or kind of stick everything together. So it's kind of bad news when we see that. And so the question becomes, how do we figure out you know, if it's a good cyst or a bad cyst. And typically, if it stays around for a while, it more likely is an endometrioma. And then that's when your doctor may talk to you about doing some sort of surgery to evaluate it. Depends a little bit on your symptoms, depends a little bit on the size of the cyst, and also depends a little bit on what your fertility, you know, wishes are going down the road. So that's one type of a pathologic, not a good cyst. Carrie, can you name another, explain another type of pathologic cyst that we see sometimes?
2: So dermoid cysts are um, are probably some of the coolest type of cysts, and they cool
0: cool in a gross sort of way, though, right?
1: From a scientific standpoint,
0: (laughs) yeah. Patients are always mesmerized by these when we when they have them,
2: uh huh. And when we describe what's in them, and a a dermoid cyst is a cyst where um, typically people are born with these cells. That there's different types of cells that have taken up residence within the ovary. And these cells have the ability to become a great great number of different types of tissue. And so when you see a dermoid on an ultrasound, they've got a fairly distinct appearance because they sometimes light up really brightly because they can have calcium in them. And the biggest place where so,
1: so Carrie, what type of tissue can be in these dermoids? Uh, and
0: what is actually almost always in these? I don't think I've ever operated on one that doesn't have this.
1: <laughs> so right. you can
2: have in your ovary hanging out in this cyst. You can have teeth, you can have thyroid tissue. Sometimes it is functional. Um, you can have hair, which is what pretty much all of us see. And then there's this really thick sebaceous fluid that is just kind of gross, really icky. I mean, it is the biggest zit you have ever popped in. (laughs) (laughs) And I I remember as a med student, my then boyfriend and I, um, now husband at the time, were sitting with my mom over breakfast and he was on his surgery rotation and they had just taken out like a no, this is abnormally large. It was like a 20-pound dermoid out of a, a relative. That's pretty large. Um, she looked like she was pregnant.
1: Most dermoids are not that big. So don't freak out if your doctor has told you that you have a dermoid, please.
2: Most most dermoids are you know the same size or smaller than the follicles, that, the follicular cysts that we're getting. So they tend to be fairly small. But uh, yeah, we we grossed out my mom really exceptionally thoroughly. But um, in taking those out, a lot of times they come on both sides. So you see them in one overing and then you search a little harder and you see them in the other. Um, Oftentimes we will take these out and and surgeons are very careful when they take them out because we want to keep everything encased in its little, in the plastic bag that we put it in. Um, and then we wash and wash and wash on the inside of the pelvis. Cause we don't want any of that sebaceous sticky thick fluid to irritate the snot out of the inside of your, um, abdominal cavity. So, you know, we take those out and then we usually take some pictures so that if you want to see what it is we're doing, you can see that. But, but they're, um, they're pretty phenomenal, uh, little things. And the, um, I want to say it's in my big fat Greek wedding that... (laughs) Yes, it is. The aunt goes on this long-winded explanation of a bopsy... That she had that was her twin, and what she's describing is is really a dermoid cyst because she's talking about the hair and she's talking about the teeth and all this other tissue. And so that's your pop culture reference for the day for anyone. Yeah, but but
0: that's kind of an urban legend. It's not like a baby that was never born or your twin sibling that was never yeah. born or anything. It, that's yeah, kind of an urban like legend. You, <laughs>
2: you not true. Absorb somebody else. Yeah, uh, you know, the yeah. survival of the fittest, but
0: not true. So Susan, what are some other cysts that you can have in your ovaries?
1: So other cysts, you start thinking about things that make us kind of a little bit more concerned, um, as physicians and as patients, when we start talking about things like borderline cysts or even cysts that we might have some concern about becoming cancer, okay, um, So there there are cysts that that can be signs of things that could lead to cancer or may actually be cancer. Now, when you're at the age that you are generally seeking fertility treatment, so I would say on the average age of somewhere between 25 and 45, these, these are relatively uncommon. Um, if we do see one of these, they're more likely going to be something called a borderline cyst, which means it has some of the cells that we're concerned about going towards cancer and not actual cancer cells quite yet. Um, oftentimes, if, you're ha- if you have a cyst that has certain appearances, Um, or potentially maybe you have cysts that we've done some blood work and there's some, maybe some certain chemicals in your blood that are high. We may involve somebody called a gen oncologist. So that would be an OB gen who has done special training in cancer. Um, Not that you necessarily have cancer, but that we want them to potentially weigh in on the case, maybe even do the surgery because if they get in there and they do um, what we call frozen pathology so that they can send pathology off right away and they can take a quick look and say, Ooh, this looks like it's something pretty safe or "Mm, it might be a little more scary that they can do the appropriate kind of the rest of the surgery, the staging um, than in there to help you get through kind of a diagnosis and into whatever type of treatment you may need a little bit sooner.
0: So Carrie, when would you operate? Like if we have a listener out there and she's like, oh my gosh, I have this cyst and it's been here for three or four months and it hadn't gone away. When would you tell that patient that she probably does need to have an invasive procedure done to kind of figure out what's going on?
2: So part of it is what you said in there for three or four months just doesn't go away so something that's persistent because majority of the cysts that we look at even a functional cyst like a follicle that is growing really big and is still producing hormones um or or even just in there uh, most of those will start to regress and get smaller over the time so if it's been several months and it's just not moving in size that may prompt us to say okay we need to take it out um as always size matters
0: <laughs> yes, I was going to say that earlier. Size matters when it comes to cysts. In fact, that's a big determinant of what you do, I think. That's a huge determinant. So by the
2: time in a, in a reproductive age woman, it's about 10 centimeters that is the do not pass go, do not collect $200, go to the operating room. Um, in a postmenopausal woman, so she's totally stopped having periods. That, that size is smaller, but we tolerate a lot more in women who are still having periods every month. Um, there are some characteristics of these cysts. So when we say this looks like a simple cyst, then that means that it just looks like there's, it's a water glass with plain water put in it. Um, once you start to see that this is a cocktail with little bits of herbs put in for flavoring and (laughs) berries or other things, that's more of a problem when it doesn't look like just simple fluid in there. And you can see divisions, or you can see part solid, part liquid. That's that's when we start to say, okay, this thing's got to come out right away. Um, if it's causing symptoms and pain, that that will prompt us to take it out. Although most cysts don't actually cause a lot of pain. Um, they got to be bigger and they got to be you know actively causing problems for that. But um, and and then sometimes when we're about to start an IVF cycle, and there's one that's just in the way, particularly for someone who doesn't have a lot of eggs, where we want that room for growth and we don't want to mess with something, oftentimes we'll say we need to go in and and take
0: it out. So Susan, why would you not want to take out a cyst? If something's there and you know it's not a physiologic cyst and you know it's not going away, why would you not want to take it out?
1: Well, so every time we operate on an ovary and we try to remove a cyst, we are going to remove eggs. No matter how experienced your surgeon is and how fantastic he or she may be, that is just the reality of ovarian surgery. When so you, surgery when damages eggs. It, it Surgery is going to damage eggs. Surgery is going to remove eggs. And you are born with all the eggs you're ever going to get. So if you're an individual whose ovarian reserve or how many eggs we think you have is not as exuberant as we would necessarily like it to be, that would definitely be somebody who we would Probably reserve surgery for a later date, or maybe just say let's get a let's keep an eye on it. Yeah, one other thing I would add in too about reasons to operate on somebody
0: is I think it's a good idea for either your reproductive endocrinologist or your general gynecologist to kind of keep an eye on the cyst. I think if it's, you know, three centimeters or below, it's probably going to be okay. But if it starts to get bigger over time and it changes over time, and I've seen that happen in a couple of different patients over the years. I saw a patient like maybe in the fall and it was a certain size and, and then Christmas time came and it was a little bit bigger. And then I saw her back a few months later and we had talked about doing surgery because she was starting to have p- more pain anyway. And it changed and looked very different. It was bigger. It looked very different. And we went in and sure enough, she had a borderline. And so I think borderline tumors in my experience, and and now doing IVF more commonly on patients with borderline tumors, those things can grow pretty fast and they do. And so I think they'll declare themselves pretty quickly, or at least in my experience, if you see one and you monitor them every few months, they they tend to grow more quickly. So if, if it gets bigger fast, that's one that definitely, I would say needs to come out.
2: Yeah. And why would you guys take them out completely? Like, why wouldn't you just drain the fluid, make it smaller, and go on with your day?
1: Well, it depends on what the cyst is. If it's a simple cyst and it's stable and it's not doing anything and you just want to get it out of the way for IVF, those are people who sometimes draining the cyst is a perfectly reasonable option to do.
0: And sometimes you could even do that in the office too. That's mm-hmm. kind of a quick little thing that you just can do. Like retrieval, really.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, but when you're talking about cysts like endometriomas or borderline cysts, so with endometriomas, there's pretty good evidence to show that, first of all, it's really hard to suck that stuff out, number one. Um, Number two, um, realize that that endometrioma is full of kind of blood. So just like when you were in high school or college and you were um, doing your... um, you know, little experiments with the Petri dish, you can actually introduce <laughs> infection into those endometriomas and it creates a great place to grow bacteria. And, you know, obviously, you know, our number one thing is do no harm. So we don't want to introduce an infection and it and it really doesn't fix endometriomas. Yeah, you, you drain it and
0: it'll fill back up again too. Exactly. Like even, with, even with surgery, if they get drained, you want your surgeon, if they're going in there, to take out the cyst wall and not just drain it because it'll fill back up again.
1: And then when you're, you're looking at things like borderline tumors and things like that, we don't want, we don't want bad stuff kind of draining accidentally into the pelvis. So when, when those surgeries are happening, there are very specific techniques that are done to keep everything as contained as possible. And so, you know, when, when you talk about just draining a follicle it, it, or draining a cyst, that's a simple cyst that's not ginormous that we feel very confident is just a little follicle that just didn't get the right message versus these other things are, 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 you know, and not all endometriomas need to be operated on just because they're there. You know, I don't want our patients also to think that, Oh no, I have a cyst. That means I need to have surgery or drainage or something like that. I mean, a lot of times nowadays, just with a little observation and, you know, we, we work around them, you know, and things like that, but we, we want to make sure that your, your safety and health and being is, is our number one priority and, and attaining pregnancies number two. So Carrie, any last words that you have?
2: Probably the main one is when your reproductive endocrinologist or your OBGYN tells you, you have a cyst. First and foremost, don't freak out. Don't panic. <laughs> and when they tell you, yeah, we're just going to watch it, it's it, that's really the right thing to do. I mean, that this is one where not springing into action immediately is to your favor. Because if they are springing into action immediately, then that means that the cyst has already declared itself. And that's really clear. Something needs to be done. If they're saying it's okay to wait, then it really and truly probably is okay to wait.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, great to talk with you guys again and to our audience. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you.
2: You can also visit us at fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for Ask
1: the Doc segment. So don't pull back. The more embarrassing and fun, the better. All right. We'll see y'all soon. Bye Bye everybody. Bye y'all.